make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom with your host, Kaya Alexander. Welcome, everybody. I am the host of the Entertainment Business Wisdom podcast, Kaya Alexander, and I'm here with you today with our special guest, Jeff Porter. Jeff has spent his years in LA furthering the ingenuity, creativity, and drive which guided him through his collegiate career at UNLV, during which he founded the nonprofit Music and Film Development Center, which teaches youth about music and film production, as well as the business behind it. His passion for film and its myriad facets has exposed him firsthand to the blood, sweat, and tears of running a set from the ground up, as well as the countless hours spent as an editor for many projects. It's it's what led him to Los Angeles, working his way up from scouting films to then selling them. It was there in a kind of baptism by fire, which Jeff learned about the distribution and financing side of film, working his way up from film scout to president in the process, finding distribution and or financing for over 50 films, managing a team of film scouts, as well as a team of acquisitions executives, overseeing the logistics of several theatrical releases, in addition to cultivating relationships with all the major domestic and international distributors. Jeff's drive and focus have been much fed by the unparalleled satisfaction of being able to help filmmakers and producers find distribution and audiences for their opuses, true to the ethos which was the impetus for his nonprofit. A part of the job that brings Jeff great satisfaction has been traveling to the different film festivals and sales markets all around the globe to provide a voice and audience for independent filmmakers, as well as educating them on the nuances of film distribution, finance, and business development via panel discussions and workshops and podcasts like this one. Jeff, welcome. Thank you so much. You did so well on that. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I love love getting to know you, even discovering you through this bio. And it's our first time meeting here today. And I'm I'm so happy that we were able to connect and you can join us for the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I appreciate everyone for joining in as well. Hopefully, you know, I can enlighten someone in regards to the business or give someone some kind of insight in regards of, you know, their goals and, and what they're looking to accomplish as well. I love that. Tell me about your nonprofit work. I'm so curious about that. Yes, very much so. So it, it, long but short story, in school, I went to, you know, I was in school for film and um, I was learning so much about the film and the film business and I wanted to start my own business. And I went to a business consultant at the time and I'm like, how do you start a business with no money? You know, <laughs> and what's the, like, how do you actually do that? I think I was a college student and they're like, how do you actually start a business with no money? And the their first recommendation was a nonprofit. And so at that time, I learned all about nonprofits. I learned how to grant write. Um, you know, I aligned everything in regards of my 501c3. So I got approved for my 501c3. And then I went right to grant writing, which allowed me to, to secure grants from the city, from the, from the county, from the state, um, and different, you know, small organizations, which, you know, funded equipment, which funded a studio, a lab in order to kind of, you know, um, house a place for kids to actually learn. So not only was it a time where, you know, me getting through school, but it was a time I was able to actually acquire equipment and actually, you know, get my own studio, so to speak, to actually work out of. So um, I, love time, that. I was really good at editing and, 
you know, um, to be able to give back and educate kids at that same time, um, it was amazing for me. So it was like a good start for me in the business in regards of film production, um, music production as well. And then on top of that, I got to educate some youth um, and give them some of the knowledge that I was learning and acquiring at the time. So that was kind of, you know, my start with the nonprofit. So I started my nonprofit actually before um, before my for-profit. What was the transition like for you going from the nonprofit to the for-profit world of film? It was tough in the, in the introspect of learning, really learning film distribution. You know, in school, you learn so much about production and editing and, and grip work and, you know, just some of the technical um, things in regards of creating content. Um, but you never really learn the business behind the content. And so, you know, I did so much in regards to film production, but, you know, when I moved to LA and being able to work, um, behind sales agents and different distributors, I was really able to learn film distribution. And so transitioning from the production side of things and educating people and learning more about the production to going into distribution was a, a big curve, you know, in, in regards of just learning how the marketplace was and, and almost, you know, taking myself away from what I was taught production wise and learning the business behind the film and then bringing myself back to the production, you know, because sometimes I think filmmakers get caught up in, in, in their film that they don't think about the business and film is actually a business as well. And so just that learning curve of me actually learning the business behind film, you know, and, and putting down the camera in many years, you know, that was uh, a big transition. We have that in common, that love of the business side and also the creative side, which it sounds like you really love production and the music and that you came from editing, right? Yes, I did. I did. Well, that's how I got my start. You know, um, that's how I was able to fund my way through school. Um, you know, no one's willing to pay a director, you know, in, in, in college, you know, it's like, you know, you don't get paid as a director. It's just not <laughs> something that, you know, they, they do. But as an editor, everyone it felt won't. like they had to give the editor something, you know, I don't care if it's a free meal something they're going to give the editor. So I just got really good at editing. And um, that kind of, you know, pushed me into many projects, working with different people um, and just learning the editing side of things. But I always wanted to understand how distribution worked. You know, it's like I was editing different projects for people and then they would go get distribution for these projects and then make a lot of money. And so I'm like, well, how do I actually survive and make money then? And so <laughs> I get in I that like, stream. Yes. I was like, I need to learn film distribution. And that's what I kind of dedicated myself to learning. Um, and thus here I am. It is one of the more opaque elements of the film business. Cause you might go to school, like you said, to learn all about production, but then you get out and you're like, Oh, I, I know so much about the craft, but how do I actually sell my, my work? And right, right, film right. distribution has changed so much too. I mean, I was a development exec going back to 2005, 2006, and uh, then I worked for Gary Shandling in 2006, 2007, and it has dramatically changed from that era to where we are now. And I imagine you've been in so much flux over all of that change. And I guess the question that I'm kind of coming around toward is what do you see that has the core elements that have stayed the same? of the business model and where have you had to really shift and change your business model and strategy as distribution has changed with streaming and everything else? No, good question. You know, when I first came into distribution, this kind of speaks to my age a little bit because I guess I'm, I'm aging in the business, but um, everything was still, you know, we were still using, you know, um, 35 millimeter screenings. I mean, 35 millimeter um, tape um, for, for theatrical screenings. You were still getting mailed DVD screeners, you know, so in order to kind of solicit a film, we were still mailing out screeners everywhere. Um, so you're deal still dealing with the physical form of the business where everything kind of formed to digital. And at that time, you know, and it was an interesting, interesting transition for me because, you know, my first hand on distribution, it was, you know, me screening different, from films, film after film. I mean, we were in the DVD phase, so it wasn't, you know, VHS at the time, but it was still, you know, mailing out 80 plus screeners to different executives all around the world, um, you know, and spinning postage and, and, and tracking and things like that and, and having to house that much content um, and then seeing the DVD market completely tank. So at that time, you got to see a lot of companies that were relying on DVD sales and their relationships with Walmart and Target and the DVD retailers kind of go, 
under. And so, so many films and filmmakers got caught in that landslide. And it was so unfortunate. So many companies went bankrupt. Um, filmmakers, you know, lost films, lost rights, or lost years of, of, trans, of transactions and tractional revenue for their content because a whole market share just kind of went out the way because digital, the digital market came up. Um, and at that time, you know, we were like, what is this digital stuff? You know, it's not efficient. It's slow. I can't watch a full so movie slow. without it buffering. It was like, this is ridiculous. You know, um, Netflix was coming up and they're doing DVDs to the home. And so, you know, as a person in the business, I'm like, what the heck is going on? The industry is about to go under. Like, you know, how are we going to survive? You know, DVDs, no one's watching them anymore. But it was technology and technology kept advancing. And what I had to learn was, is just like with social media and, and, and getting to that curve with social media and adapting to that, like, okay, hey, what's posting every day? What is this? You know, um, I think you just have to keep up with technology and the times. And so as the times evolve and change, you have to evolve with it. And sometimes you're, you're in the old school way of, of doing things and making money and surviving, but you almost have to kind of figure out a way to adapt at the same time um, and, and, and prepare for the future. So at that same time, when we were still stuck on DVD sales, I still remember there were certain companies out there and, and, and a few that were just asking for digital rights. You know, no one was asking for video on demand rights at that time, but there was a couple companies just like, hey, all we want is video on demand. You know, we don't care about DVD, no theatrical, just give us video on demand and we're happy. And then a few years later, you understand like, hey, they were super smart and they were genius mm -hmm. and they were ahead of the curve. And so that's really what I've learned. Um, in regards to the technological landscape, you know, just staying up to it, adapting to it. Um, I don't think, I think people are going to consume content no matter what, you know, we love entertainment. We love watching movies. Um, now they're more accessible than ever before. So now we can actually access them from our phones, but we have to be trained to do so. You know, it had to have ease of access. It took years and for us to, to really get adapted to actually watching a full fledged movie via our phone. Um, and, but as times are evolving, we have to understand and evolve with them. Um, and it's really about just having the right content because people are going to want to consume the right type of content no matter what. Yeah, I so agree with that. You're the president of Porter Pictures. Tell us about yes. your company. Um, I formed Porter Pictures around maybe about 13 years ago. Um, and I formed Porter Pictures as a producer's rep and a sales agent. You know, at, at that time, I had built some amazing relationships with pretty much majority of the major distributors around the world and sales agents around the world. Um, and it's like, hey, you know, they're looking for content. I had access to content. So they were calling me accessing for content. So it was, it was just my best interest to, to help filmmakers find the best deals for their films. So that's pretty much what that was in, in the initial standpoint was finding good films and then finding the absolute best deals for them, especially, you know, learning and coming up in film. You, it takes time to really understand distribution contracts and understand terms and terminology and really what a distributor does. And for years, that's all I did was learning how distribution companies made income, how they survived, what type of content did what in the marketplaces, what networks were seeking at the time, um, and how the networks actually, you know, survived with the top type of content they were acquiring. And so it was in my best interest, like I said, to find that type of content to deliver to the networks because it's like, hey, you know, that was the missing piece. Um, and then that kind of formed into... You know, not only do I have the relationships, but I have the, the ability and, and the trust of the filmmakers to actually start distributing our own content. And so it went from me working with different distributors to being able to kind of do it myself and go direct to everyone and put content directly into the marketplace. So um, I've got a chance to see my own company evolve um, through the years of just working with different films and filmmakers. What's your strategy around acquisition? Um. In regards to what do you mean? And just like the type of content or what what inspires you, what attracts you to filmmakers and to their projects? And also do you work with the same ones over and over? Or are you always looking for new? No, good question. Um I came in the air, I just love movies. You know, even as a little kid, I've always watched movies. You know, I remember in summer, 
um, when I would go away, I would I would wake up in the morning and I would pick like seven or eight movies that I would watch throughout the whole day, especially if like one of my aunts had this huge video library. And I would literally get seven VHSs and I would watch them one by one all day long. Um, and this was as a kid. So as an adult, it's like I'm in an adult playground where I just have films, you know, and there's so many film festivals, there's markets, there's special screenings, especially living here in L.A. Um, it's like a smorgasbord of film, so to speak. So you know, the goal is to access and, and watch as many as possible. Now, of course, I'm only one person, so I have to employ a team of film scouts, and I send them to festivals all over the world, um, and they watch a bunch of films. They ask for a lot of films. And so the goal is to get as many films accessible as possible and then to screen as many of those as possible um, for acquisition to see which ones we may like, which ones we don't like. Um, and there is no, like, particular strategy. It's just really I love movies, so I want to see them all. <laughs> um, I don't care what language they're in, you know, they're <laughs> subtitled, where they were made, the Bollywood, Nollywood, you know. Um, oh, I love Bollywood films. You know, all the above. It's like I just enjoy filmmaking, and the fact that I get to sell them um, is just a privilege. So when you're distributing now, are you distributing to the streamers? Are you di- where, where are the movies going? Everywhere. So I, I brought a partner in uh, by the name of Keith L. Craig, who had been with Disney for many, many years um, that kind of helped me on the, the theatrical end because I was kind of a part where um, I was a bit of a novice myself. So um, understanding theatrical distribution to the highest scale, you know, thousands of screens, you know, um, especially here in the States. Um, he was a big help in that regarding the relationships and the understanding of the know-how. Um, the digital I read about him on your website and he has a fascinating bio. What a cool yes, yes. guy. Is an amazing, amazing person. Your whole team is so quite cool. a few walks of life. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm so thankful. You know, there's everyone by me is just stuck by me forever. You know, uh, my assistant Telly, he's been with me since I started my company. I couldn't even ask him to leave. You know, um, every day he's just accountable. He calls me every morning, like, "Hey, Jeff, what's going on next?" You know, um, just I, I've, I've found some amazing people to work with, and I'm so thankful for that. I think that's such a big part of the business, and 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 because film is a team sport. You know, you can't really do it all by yourself. And so I press um, and push and let people know that, hey, it's about having a good team. And I'm so happy and proud of my team and the people we've been able to assemble um, to kind of handle certain roles because they've been efficient, you know, because it's really about helping people with their children. Because I consider film like children um, because they're the people's babies. And so, you know, um, I'm okay being a babysitter when it comes to this capacity because I love their kids. (laughs) And, you know, just about having the team that's willing and and, and to go that extra mile for their kids as well. I love that. You know, in case anyone in our audience doesn't know what a producer's rep does, what the job is, would you unpack that a little bit for folks listening? Because a lot of filmmakers don't even know. No, no, most definitely, most definitely. And honestly, I get confused on that as well sometimes, you guys, just because people ask me. You know, so uh, first, originally coming into the business, Um, I started working for a producer's rep, one of the biggest in the business at the time. And at that time, a producer's rep was known for having the relationships of every distributor and pretty much most of the broadcast networks out there, but charging a retainer, a fee for their services. So meaning, you know, you have to come up front with, you know, a couple grand or something, whatever their retainer is to kind of um, cover their services. And they would shop your film and take your film out to all their relationships and, and really do the best to go to bat to actually get the best deal for you and then help you negotiate and, 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 and create the best deal and strategy for your film. You know, um, the negative side is some producers, reps, or people have created a bad name producers, reps, by, you know, over gouging on filmmakers, you know, taking filmmakers' money and not delivering a service. You know, just the things that anyone can do that's scrupulous inside of a business at any point in time. So, you know, that's the, the positive and negative necessarily about a producer's rep. A sales agent technically is someone that's going to acquire rights and actually be able to sell your film directly. So the negative thing necessarily also about a producer's rep is they're not taking licensing ability, meaning they actually have to come back to you to get authority to sign the deal. So even if HBO likes your film and HBO wants to put up an offer for your film, you actually have to approve the deal and sign off on the deal. Um, whereas a producer's rep, I cannot. So I'm at the mercy of you still. So that's one of the reasons for charging a fee or any kind of expense or retainer. Whereas a sales agent, I don't have to do that. So if a deal comes with HBO, I have licensing authority and the licensing right. So I can actually sign that deal myself um, and then just tell you about the deal. You know, so regardless <laughs> if you like it or not, you know, <laughs> hey, I had the ability of making this deal happen and you couldn't sabotage. 
Um, and, and, and please believe, you know, you would think and you would say, hey, what filmmaker would turn down a deal from HBO? But you would be shocked at some of the deals that people would turn down just because they feel sometimes that they deserve better. Or, you know, when you get a bird in the hand, they feel like, hey, there's more out there and let me go get some of the else that's out there. So, you know, um, that eliminates that by being a sales agent. And then a distributor is just not on top of selling your film to international marketplaces and the buyers. The distributor is actually going to distribute your content directly to the marketplace um, and handle transactional sales, marketing and, 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 and so on and so forth to kind of make sure that the film, you know, sees revenue no matter what. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you so much for that. No problem. No problem. It took me years to learn that myself. So please. (laughs) So vast. It's so vast. And it it is ever changing. I imagine that that COVID really changed your business because all the film markets were closed. What did you guys do? Yes. Well, the first year I enjoyed COVID because the first year I was like, hey, I get to actually write some projects. I get to kind of do some of the things, some personal things that I wanted to do. Um, Films were selling like crazy, meaning, you know, because networks were, you know, a bit scared. They were buying content in the beginning of the, um, you know, um, the pandemic like crazy. So we're selling content probably about the first six, seven months of the pandemic. Um, So it was great in the very beginning in regards to business wise. But the second years where I think filmmakers really started to take a toll because there was no films really being made. And so you're speaking of a year like 2019 where thousands of films, I think they had just, we had came off a year where the most films ever had been made in one year and regarding independent films to going to the next year where, you know, a couple hundred films were made, you know, and these were big studio films and, 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 and certain films that didn't have certain COVID restrictions or they're very limited because they did have COVID restrictions. So, you know, to go from, you know, three, 4,000 films a year in one year or 9,000, I forgot what the number exactly is. So a few hundred is a drastic difference, as you can understand. So the marketplace changed quite a bit. Um, so I think that second year was a bit daunting in regards of acquisitions, not a lot of content out there. Um, so at that point, you know, I think we utilized, you know, co-production deals, you know, developing projects and kind of did what we did to kind of prepare. So when the market did open back up, we were prepared for it. Are you guys financing now? Yes. So we do it all. So um, we assist in financing. We help with the co-productions um, and we do direct distribution. How do filmmakers, how do you connect with filmmakers now most frequently? Um, typically we go after them. If it's something that we're interested in, if it's a film that we're interested in, we go after them. Um, of course, you know, uh, there's a lot of word of mouth business um, from filmmakers and, and clients that we've worked with in the past. So I get a lot of that a lot of referrals, um, a lot of people just reaching out because of our website or seeing us speak at panels or different things like that. So, you know, it's, it's pretty vast in regards of, you know, where people reach out to us. I get uh, shocked sometimes as well when I get, you know, certain um, people reaching out, but they're, you know, by, you know, covering different platforms, being at so many festivals and marketplaces and, and having films out there, I think that kind of, you know, helps in, in creating awareness of what we do. And then filmmakers that kind of need our service reach out. But typically, just you know, word of mouth, or um, we reach out to them. I'm often asked the question, "What mm-hmm. is a good distribution deal?" Like by my students, by filmmakers in the industry, distribution deals are infamously not never transparent. So yeah. it would be great to get a sense of your idea what what is a great distribution deal. How should filmmakers go into that process? Well, okay, so I explain distribution as this. It has to involve some kind of trust, of course, right? I mean, contracts are just contracts that are supposed to protect both parties. So within contracts, you need to understand contract and contract law. And if you don't understand it, get an entertainment attorney or get someone that actually understands contracts. That's first, you know, because technically it's as me as a distributor, I'm not looking to get over on a filmmaker. I'm just looking to A, recoup the money that we spend out and then make a profit based on the profit share of the film. You know, and then, of course, um, I'm credible by cutting you a check based on your profit. So it's okay and understandable that, okay, we get recouped and and we make a percentage. But as long as we cut you your check and everything is fair and you actually can see your revenues coming in, that's actually a good distributor. Now, in regards of terminology and deal points, that's what you feel comfortable with with your film and and, and what the the, the value is in the marketplace. So deal points and, and, and percentages have changed. You know, I've seen because of the digital landscape, you know, produce, I mean, distributors taking, you know, 50, 60 plus percent. I don't believe that is fair in some cases. 
Um, but I've seen that, you know, we've done deals that are of wow. alike, you know, just because, you know, that's just what you're up against. You know, there's no one else wanting it and this is what they're offering and this is what they're willing to do based on putting their money up, you know, because any distributor has to kind of put their own money up to kind of deliver and distribute a film. And so, you know, in that case, it's really what you feel and what you can negotiate the best deal to be. Because um, I would never say, hey, this deal is wrong and this deal is right, because if, if, if it worked for you, then it worked for you, you know. Um, now, I try to look at, you know, main points when it comes to a distribution deal. And those main points are um, the territory in which, you know, your film is being distributed in. And so you should pay attention to what territories the distributor is strong in, you know, and ask them about international territories. You know, find out. They're asking for the world. Find out what they're actually going to be doing internationally outside of their main dominant territory. That way you understand if they have the best, if they should be having those rights to, you know, Japan or Asia and, and the UK and, 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 and other places that they might not be strong at. So definitely ask those questions. Um, commissions, percentages, you know, that's always a, a question. So you want to make sure the commission and the splits are fair to you, you know, based on what they're asking for. You know, sometimes you want, want to go in and negotiate, just ask for 5% lower, 10% lower just to see, you know, um, and you never know what you may get. So I would never say don't, you know, everything is, 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 um, is set because, you know, everything can be negotiable, especially with a contract I've learned on every scale. So, you know, ask and if they're willing and able to give, sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. Um, years are, are, are huge in regards of how long, um, they're going to keep your film, you know, um, Back in the day, I remember their distributors were asking for 30 plus years to, to keep a film, which is, you know, you know, so crazy. But then I understood why. And that was because of leverage and equity within, you know, selling their catalogs to banks. If they have your film for 30 plus years, you know, their value goes higher opposed to them having your film for three to five years, you know. Um, so it's just finding a sweet spot within there where they're comfortable and you're comfortable, you know, um, one, two year deals, unless it's just like a direct licensing deal with a network, but the distributor is really not going to work, you know, because the distributor really needs to take time to kind of get his money back and recoup his money back. And typically it takes up to two years, sometimes more for a coup for a film to kind of truly recoup all of its revenues. Um, and so, you know, a distributor is going to ask for a few years because to be on the safe side, just kind of make sure of that. So, but years is a big point. Um, What's another point? Auditing clause. You know, I've gotten caught in that. You want to make sure there's some kind of auditing clause in there. So if you're not happy with, you know, the report thing, you actually get a chance to audit, you know, and not like a lawsuit. It's literally just, hey, we want to check the books and make sure the records are clear based on what you're sending, you know, um, arbitration, things like that before you actually go to court. So you want to make sure some clauses like that are in agreement. And that's really just protecting just in case. You know, um, you wanted someone to be credible and say, hey, I hope they're reporting and giving me back the, the correct reports. But just an auditing clause in there just helps to kind of keep that clean so they know that you can check their books at any given time, you know, with um, with prior notice. Um, outside of an auditing clause, percentages, commissions, I think that's pretty much it that I would mainly look at. Delivery, that's always a big thing. You like the elements they're looking for and they need to deliver the film. If there's any advances or NGs, you know, that's always a question. Oh, the marketing expenses, that's huge. So yeah. um, the marketing cap and marketing expenses, you always have to look for that. So you want to know how much your distributor or your agent or anyone is recouping on the sales of the film, you know, because I've seen marketing expenses in the upwards of 100K sometimes, you know. So that means typically your film has to make over $100,000 before you see a, a dollar, you know. And so, you know. A lot of shippers made out that way. You know, the film makes 100K, then they stop working on it. So they made their money now and, and you kind of got to spend for yourself, but they have the film for the next 15 years. So you want to make sure that that number is okay, um, okay with you. And they give you some kind of idea of what they're actually doing marketing wise and where those expenses are going. You know, and, and, and you understand that the shippers going to make a few dollars here somewhere. But then you just want to make sure it's in line. Hey, you know, how much is it? How much is actually being spent out? How much are you going to recoup before I actually see my first dollar? Um, and that's always a point you want to look at, you know, so you don't want that number to be too high because then you'll never see any monies whatsoever, you know. So those are points that I've always looked at um, that can make or break a good distribution contract. How much of marketing has really gone digital now? Because I would imagine, oh, it's 80 percent, but I don't really know from the inside perspective that you have. Yeah, so depending if you're going directly to digital or if you're going theatrical as well. So theatrical, of course, marketing and P&A can be still high. You know, you're still speaking of 10, 15, 
you know, based on my partner, sometimes 20, 25% of whatever the budget was of the film. Right. So, you know, if you're speaking of a million dollar film, you're still speaking of 200K P&A technically just to kind of promote and market the film. And then you have to figure out a way to kind of make your money back in, in the way that make, makes sense. If it's going directly digital, it's going to be a little bit cheaper. Um, but you still want to allocate around 10% of marketing towards whatever the budget was. And that's, you know, a good number in regards of, okay, we're going to put this here because the goal of marketing is to create awareness to get people to watch your film, of course, or to want to buy your film. And so, you know, undervaluing, underdoing marketing can hurt and, and really break the sales of a film. Overdoing marketing can hurt your pockets, of course, um, but it does create awareness. So you have to find that fine line and what works and good strategies now. And I think that's why, you know, good marketing firms that, you know, create unique strategies that kind of cater to, to certain content, you know, they're winning. Um, so it's, you know, marketing is key. I would never say you have to have a certain budget, but you have to have enough to kind of hit those avenues that you want to hit and hit the numbers you want to hit. Um, because it's really about numbers. It's really about eyeballs. How many people can you put this in front of um, to create awareness? And advertising, is, it's set, you know. Um, you have to put this film in front of so many people so many times in order for them to want to purchase this film. And that you sometimes have to pay for. And, you know, that's kind of where you set the marketing dollars at. Now, the numbers, like I said, is around 10, 10, 10 to 15%, sometimes more, depending on your, your budget and the, and the film itself. Does it factor into your evaluation of a movie, whether the filmmaker has an existing audience and how big that existing audience is and their platform size? Sometimes. I mean, I, I've learned to not depend on a filmmaker's audience because sometimes that can, you know, be void. You know, sometimes it can mean nothing when it comes to the sales of the film. Hmm. And we've seen that in the past. Like, hey, well, we were depending on your crew and your cast and and this person who had a million plus followers on social media, you're saying that was going to, you know, get, you know, at least 100,000 of his people to watch it. Well, you know, only 100 did, you know, and we oh, can God. see that based on the numbers. <laughs> and so, you know, I try not to depend on that, and I try to depend on my know-how and, and understanding of the business and the marketplace. Of yes. course, those things help, and so I can use those as like, hey, helpful points, you know, um, but I don't use that as in regards of the big selling points. I use the, the standard points in regards of selling content um, because typically those work opposed to, hey, I have a big, you know, network or I have a big family who's going to all, you know, purchase my <laughs> big family, <Yeah. laughs> huge <laughs> you know, family. <laughs> I've heard it all, so, you know. <laughs> How, you know, you're also a matchmaker for where the films need to go um, and, yeah, you know, yeah. what audiences will appreciate them. Speak to the nuance of that. Um, well, it's really understanding the film, you know, and that's where it comes to the genres, the, the base of the film. If you have a horror film, if you have a drama if you have a comedy, um, an action film to a documentary, it's really understanding who your audience is and who you're speaking to. Of course, you want to step outside the box and be able to reach more than what your core audience is. And so, you know, A, you put time in to focus on what the strategy is going to be for your, your initial core audience, who that may be, you know, so males between the ages of 15 and 30, if that's where you're going, or, or women between the ages of 15 and 45, you know, so whoever your core audience is. You want to make sure you cater and you tailor your 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 marketing elements and and, you, and anything you're doing marketing promotion wise to that. But then also, if you say, "Hey, we also want to get you know hopefully you know women that are you know 55 to 75, you know, so we have to figure out maybe if there's certain elements in our movie that might make for that. And if there isn't, you can't. You got to kind of stay in your lane. Um, and it's really understanding what your lane is. Um, what I usually do is compare comparable titles. You know, nothing is new under the sun. So. If I have a film, I look at comparable titles, you know, how they did their marketing elements, who did they cater to, some of their marketing strategies. And I kind of piggyback a little bit off of that and then use my own knowledge and create my own. Um, and that way, you know, you can use what's already out there and then try some of your own stuff and see what works. With the blending landscape of TV and film these days, have you guys started mm -hmm. to cross over to TV also? Oh, I love TV. Television has been huge forever. You know, um, we've always you know, made a goal to have at least one or two films on television every year. Um, you know, television, what I used to always say is the money's a bit faster because of how, you know, um, advertising works. Now, the good thing within television, you have the ABOT space, which is almost looking similar to television where you have advertising and, and, and the money is kind of the exact same um, in regards of the timing. 
Yeah, but television has always been huge, you know, um, because that's what people look at. And and the fact that a television sale will help my transactional numbers greatly. And the reason being is, you know, typically on any major network, you're accessing, what, 20 million plus homes, whereas to advertise and to market 20 million plus homes, it's very costly, you mm-hmm. know, especially the social media. You can actually even pull it up. So you can go on Facebook and see how do I advertise to 20 million people and see what the cost is and see, you know, how many times can I advertise to these people in a day? Um, and the 20 million, you're going to see those, those costs are extreme. They're, you know, I think they're in six figures, if not higher. Oh, definitely. So to, to get that for free from television, not only for free, but they're paying you for it. It's, you know, it's in your best interest to, to kind of look at television just because of the audiences they've already kind of um, acquired. That's a really good point. Are you guys producing series too, or just movies for television? Um, series. So we have a, quite a few different series right now. We have one series called Pink as Anne that's been um, developed out of Canada. Um, and so we're bringing that to the U.S. this year. Um, and that's been, um, it's, it's, it's a, I wouldn't say a trade off of Orange is the New Black, but, you know, it's definitely a hilarious comedy coming from Canada um, about a woman's prison, you know, um, and, you know, the nuances and stuff that they deal with. So that's a, a great series. Um, we have a couple urban series that we've been working with to develop as well. Um, we have a, a reality-based series that we're pushing right now as well. So, yes, I love the series space, and we have quite a few different series and different walks um, that we're pushing towards television as we speak. Oh, that's interesting. Hey, how would you yeah. describe your brand? Because you do sound like you you love everything. I do, I do, I do. Um, just film, you know. The, the I want to be able to cater and, and, and nurture any producer at any level of, of the business. You know, I don't care if you just have a screenplay, um, if you just have an idea, you know, the goal is to bring that idea to fruition and not only bring it to fruition, but make a profit from it now. And so I have a mentality from wish fruition to profit, you know, so, you know, and it's not hard. It's not rocket science. We don't work in, you know, um, we're not in the science lab, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It's, film. it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be entertainment um, and entertaining. Yes, it involves a lot of work um, and technical detail when it comes to sound and, and, and video. Um, and I believe the talent is artists, you know, but that's what it exactly is. You, you let the talent get to work. You let the artists kind of do what they love to do. And then you figure out the best way to make money from it. So we can go back and make more content. Um, you know, and if you can create that strategy to kind of do that efficiently, then you'll win eventually. I love that. What's your sweet spot for budgets? Um, anywhere between personally me, um, two fifty to 5 million personally. Um, but now with my partner in his budget range is, is through the roof and a lot higher than mine. I'm saying 25 million, 30 million. <laughs> you, huh? yeah, yeah. He throws numbers at me that I can't fathom right now, but we're doing it and, and we're working in that space, but he brings a different level of, of, of budget to my, to my range that I'm not used to, um, so to speak, but you know, it's the same process. It's a lot more work involved and a lot, you know, a lot more yellow tape and, and, and things involved with it, but same situation. And he was at Disney, right? Yeah, he was at Disney for uh, I think connect? last seven or eight years. Through another mutual acquaintance, you know, he's was very interested in distribution. I had another acquaintance that I've been working with in business that been referring projects over to me and that came across them. And, you know, just one of those connections like, hey, Jeff, I got some guy that, you know, you would love to meet and that's the thing I love about Hollywood um, or just about film in general, because he wasn't in Hollywood at the time. But, you know, it's a small business, you guys. And if you get out there and you actually put the work in, you put the time in and you, you let yourself be known because, you know, I don't care if you're a screenwriter, write a lot of screenplays. You know, there's no excuse if, if you're a screenwriter to sit on the same screenplay for five years. And if you do in that five year time, hopefully you have, you know, 20, 30 other projects within that five years. And then when your final baby that took five years to create, it should be like a, an avatar type masterpiece, so to speak. So, you know, it's just about putting yourself out there and, and, and putting the work in and then, you know, everything else will usually come to you, you know? Um, so if you're a screenwriter and you're writing, you know, a hundred screenplays a day, and I know it's not possible. I'm just, you know, speaking hypothetical, but if you're just writing at that capacity and you're, you're consistently pushing work out, um, so to speak, you know, you're going to funnel that work in other places because you have so much content you're sitting on. And so you'll connect with people that are shopping your screenplays. Eventually you'll land something. Eventually someone will want to make something of yours. Um, and then you'll just keep pushing that in that direction and that path, you know. Um, but I just truly believe it's just the work and putting the time in every day um, of getting something out there. 
You're, you said you're also writing too, huh? I did a bit. I'm not the biggest of writers. Writers kind of writing is like like the last on my list of filmmaking, honestly. But it's something that um, I like telling stories, and I like you know, um, and it's easier for me to kind of tell my own story than have someone tell it for me. Well, say more about that. I'm sorry. Say more about that. Um. Well, firstly, I hate screenwriting. You know, I think in college <laughs> that was like my my worst class, you know, um, it was just something I just didn't like. I don't know why. Um, I liked the editing, but I hated the screenwriting process. But, you know, over the years of reading a billion screenplays, you know, you learn, you know, um, you learn so much. And at that time, I think it was during the pandemic, maybe even before it was like, we tried writing and I wrote some stuff and, and been writing just, you know, on my own personal end. Um, but you know, on my side now, it's really about, having good stories and content to tell, you know, we access, you know, investors, we access budgets, we access studios, you know, so it's not that the money is not there and the access and the ability of making content is not there. It's really just having the right story, you know, and the right content to develop, you know, um, I get told no by so many people with so many different stories, but when you get told, yes, you're like, wow, this one. So this is what you guys are looking for. You know, and it just helps you to understand. And then you see other stories in the marketplace. And you understand, you know, what's there already and what the, the market needs. And so it's really storytelling. So screenwriting, honestly, is 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 the, the the backbone of filmmaking because without stories, you know, we don't exist. Um, and so that's never ending. Even though there's a billion stories out there, if you look at it, a lot of stories are similar. You know, a lot of people are telling stories that are like the same stories you see or you know, something that's exactly what they've seen sometimes. So finding unique stories, are, um, they're hard to come by. Tell us about one of the films on your slate right now that you're, you really love the story of. Um, well, our newest film, Blacklight, um, which we just came off a theatrical run with. You know, I love Blacklight just because it's a supernatural crime thriller, you know. And so it's it's. It's different in regards of, you know, having the action, comedy, and supernatural. It's hard to blend and mesh all those elements together. You know, usually you have a supernatural film where it's, you know, sci-fi and those elements, or you have an action film, you just stay action. Or you can have an action comedy, but then the, so the, to throw the sci-fi, supernatural element into, a, uh, into an action comedy is really tough, filmmaking-wise. So it takes some good writing in order to kind of create those elements and those characters. And to develop those characters, because you have to have some outlandish characters, and you have to have the action-driven characters as well. The only um, thing I can think of is like, Ghostbusters. Yes, exactly. That's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good, good, good analogy. A great film, great analogy, and, you know, very similar. So, yes, yes. And it's very hard, you know, to create the Ghostbusters-type element film, and that's why I love Blacklight. So, Blacklight, we should be releasing in September um, to the marketplace. Um, right now, we just came up our theatrical run, so you'll be able to kind of check that out in the marketplace and in the stores, you know, around September. But, you know, they did an amazing job story-wise of, you know, blending those elements. Um, you know, I've worked with so many fascinating stories. Though. I've worked with some amazing documentaries from, you know, undocumented um, where, um, or indivisible where, um, you know, uh, during the Mexican border crisis where, you know, parents were being taken from their children. Um, and you had kids, you know, going to see their parents at the border, but, you know, they can't actually, you know, physically be around them. You know, they can just see them, so to speak. And, and, and you know, the, the daunting things are with that. So that was on television. We placed that with Fuse and, and Discovery. Um, and that did very, very well. But that was just this very sad doc, you know, that was on some trying times. But we've had some amazing stories come to our office. Oh, I love that, Jeff. Um, you're such an interesting person it, and you're so knowledgeable. I, I love oh, you so much of the business side. It's a mistake that I see a lot where filmmakers just don't even realize how much they don't know. Uh, mm -hmm. And then they are like, Oh, but wait, Oh, but it was my art, but it's actually, <laughs> wait, I have to turn my art into the business. Um, and I also, I was a filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah, I, I often recommend my students they go to the film markets because you discover when you go to the film markets, you see the same people year after year. You make friends. You're like, oh, hey, you're back this year. You know, let's hang out. Let's have dinner. And you build those relationships um, that really are how you thrive in this industry to call back to what you said about having the team. In my school, I call it finding your wolf pack. 
Because if you're yeah. if you've got your wolf pack, you're you're all, some of you at any given time are going to be eating. You're going to enable the others around you to eat. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. very much so, very much so. You know, I'll speak a, a quick story. You know, um, my first year attending ASM, and I remember it was mind blowing just because of the things I got to see. And I had instructions. You know, at ASM was my first year. I was going under another company's behalf, and I was told, "Hey, only speak to people with red badges." Um, and at the time, red badges were filmmakers, you know, um, do not ever even look at the people with the green badges because they were the buyers and the people with blue badges. Ah, don't talk to them. But, you know, if need be, you can say hi to them, so to speak, you know, because those are the ones we want to keep relationships with. But my focus was red badges. And, and mind you, that was just a rule. I will never forget that. But I remember I, I walked into the booth um, of one of the distributors that were there. And they were speaking with a buyer and I was, it was a meeting that I was supposed to actually go see him. And so he told me to wait because otherwise they would usually just kick you out their booth, especially when they're dealing with buyers or sales. Um, but a buyer was in there and this time they were still, they were selling films out of crates. So this is when DVDs were still relevant. Um, and they had artwork and, and posters, et cetera. So they pulled out a crate and the distributor literally went through the crate and he just looked at the artwork and picked five or 10 films just from the artwork and from the crate and he pulled them out and he was like i want these drop the paperwork um we'll sell the things later and then he walked out the office and i was like wow wait wait wait, wait. did you just sell all those films in that deal but he didn't even watch any of them and it was just like he just looked at them and, and, and gave you a price and and i was amazed and i was hurt at the same time because i'm like people putting so much time and work for their film for a buyer to buy off artwork and not care about it just for an audience. But it taught me a valuable lesson as I was going in. You know, A, as I learned now later in life, um, of course, from working and doing sales and being in the booths and et cetera and working buyers now, that buyer's had a relationship with that distributor for years. Mm. Right? So they know the type of content this distributor is going to give them. You know, so they know if they look at those <laughs> covers, the type of films they're going to expect and see because they've been doing these same deals with this distributor for years. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't have to look at the films anymore because it's a trust type situation. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I learned that later on, but then I didn't know that then, you know, as a filmmaker. So as a filmmaker, I was hurt because I'm like, hey, I put this time into my movie and they didn't even care. You know, it's like, what kind of stuff is that? But as a buyer, I understood now. Um, and then, you know, just how desensitized sometimes distributors become towards film. Um, and it's because they're so stuck in the business. So a film is literally numbers, right? So it's based on genre, it's based on statistics, it's based on comparable titles, where sometimes they don't appreciate the value and time that actually went in to create it. And I'm still kind of where I still love and appreciate the value of the time that went into the film because I still love them. And to me, it's like an opportunity of actually being able to make a film without being on set mm-hmm. um, and being being involved, you know, with the production process without being on set or having to kind of, you know, struggle out 30 days straight, you know, um, 15 hour days, you know, and in the cold weather, um, just being able to sit behind a desk and be a part of that film is an amazing thing to me. So, you know, quick story. I just want to kind of share that. That's a great story and true. And I love that you emphasized the trust relationship was already in place and that that was what you were really witnessing transpire because I think anybody else, any other filmmaker would have thought what you thought, which is like the horror horrified. Not even seen it. Right. Right. Exactly. Like, why did you choose my, you chose these films over mine. You didn't like a mail order bride. Yeah. Just, <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly. Oh my gosh. So, um, my last question for you is what tips do you have for filmmakers? Tips. Um, work your butt off. Work your butt off. I don't care what capacity, nonstop work. I don't never sit on one project, make a project and move on. Keep moving and don't stop. You know, um, this business is always evolving and it's what you did yesterday. You know, um, if it takes you six years to create a short film, that's your own fault and your own problem. You know, no one's not going, no one's going to care. Um, short films are more so for yourself. Yes. Short form content on YouTube can, can garner attention, but it's not really going to garner you a lot of revenue unless you do something different, unless it really stands out. So create a feature. You're going to create a short, create three of them that kind of coincide and, and align up. So there's a series. So now you can turn it into a 90 minute feature at the end of the day. But focus on work, you know, and, and put the time and the work in. 
And that's just what I've learned. You know, um, there's no shortcuts for it. Um, yes, of course, you know, you can create that darling film or that darling script and, and it'd be made for a million plus dollars. But I've come across so many writers that have had, you know, big blockbuster hits where their films have made hundreds of millions in the theaters, but yet, you know, they're still, you know, struggling, so to speak, or they're still kind of trying to get by with their next script because of the deal points. And so, you know, never look at that as in regards of, hey, I've reached a pinnacle of success because you're always going to have to still be working, you know, and then figure out the business at the same time. So that's just my advice, you know, um, because that's, but someone never, no one ever really told me, you know, they told me, Hey, make a movie, put it without a box, put it in a film festival and see success. Um, you know, they don't really say everything else is involved. And so my own, you know, my guidance is just keep working, make that movie, but make another one right afterwards and be planning to make another one after that as well. And to keep working. So appreciate your time today. How can people find you, your website, any social media presence you'd like to share? Yes, I'm easy to access. You can access me directly, jeff.porter, porterpictures.com. Um, if you want to submit a project, submissions at porterpictures.com. Um, hopefully my name is pretty easy to spell. It's jeff.porter at porterpictures.com. Send anything you like, any correspondence, I'm happy. Um, I usually try to respond to my emails within 48 hours, so to speak, but you know, uh, you know, that's how you want to reach me. I'm happy to kind of talk or um, anything like that. Thank you so much for that warm, open door. We all appreciate it so much. No, thank you for the invitation. You know, I enjoy it. Like I said, I, I love trying to give some kind of insight or education back from what I've learned and what I've acquired just because I wish someone did it for me. So please, anything I got that you need, let me know and I'm happy to help. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander can be reached on Twitter for your questions or comments at This Is Kaya. Get entertainment business career training as well as a free special report How to Pitch Anything in One Minute at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com Thank you.